It's good to be here this evening. <clears throat> I'm thankful for each of you who are here with us. You consider yourself a visitor. We hardly welcome you. Thank you for making the choice to make our evening together a part of your evening. We're continuing tonight in our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. Up to this point in time, we've learned that Ecclesiastes warns us about the vanity of things we might pursue in life if we pursue them with a selfish perspective and all that there is is our fulfillment here under the sun and what a wasted life that is. But in the last couple of studies, we've learned at an increasing pitch that there can be value in things in life and there can certainly be hope and be meaning if we live our lives with a godly purpose. All the things that Solomon found to be vanity and vexation of spirit, he also found to have a proper place in life when they're used and viewed through a God-honoring lens. The joys, the entertainment, the construction projects, the wealth that he acquired, the wisdom that he had, all those things can have a valid, godly place in the heart of a believer, in the life of a believer. We live in a vain world. We can't escape that reality. We're here. We've got to do something with our lives that's meaningful. So we have to take all these things that if they're the only focus our life has, it's a wasted life. But if we use these things to honor and glorify God, then our lives take on meaning. So with that foundation laid, now we can step into the book of Ecclesiastes and take a little bit different view. Now we're going to look at it like we would look at a study of the book of Proverbs and just try to find gems of wisdom that we might find there that would direct us and guide us in how we live our lives. Consider what we've learned till now. Solomon's experiment showed that pursuits under the sun are vain. When we try to replicate his experiment for a different result, we fail. It's not a matter of trying to do a better job of serving the flesh than what Solomon did. Whatever we might try to do like he did, it's going to get the same result. Certainly things under the sun, though, can have value if we enjoy them through a prism of godly principles governing our lives. We've learned that much till now. What other principles does Ecclesiastes teach us to help us in this life? What else can we learn from this book? What wisdom principles? Think about what the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us regarding using wisdom to guide our labors. We've touched on some of these things till now, and I want to uh, review and look at some in a little more detail. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 18, By much slothfulness the building decayeth through idleness uh, of the hands the house droppeth through. By much slothfulness the building decays, and by idleness of hand it caves in. <clears throat> what does this teach us? It teaches us to be industrious, to take care of the things that we have. Now consider for just a moment, we read a lot last night especially about how many things we have in life that are a gift of God. What is a basic loving ethic that we can use when we appreciate a gift? If somebody gives you a gift, you want to honor that by using it in a, in a good way and by taking good care of it. You don't want to just cast it aside and treat it carelessly or recklessly. The things that people give us as a gift and a token of their love, we want to honor the relationship by the way we treat the gifts that they give us. Well, think about the things we have in life that are gifts from God. 
things of a physical nature. In part, we honor our relationship with God in the way we use and appreciate these gifts. There's other ways that we honor Him, but that's one way that we honor Him. So think of the things that you own, the things that you have, and think of taking good care of these things. Don't be lazy and slothful about it. Don't be idle and careless, but instead... Work hard to take good care of the things you have because they're a blessing from God. And when you think about that and plug that concept into that meaningful life we talked about living last night, it makes a lot of sense. The people who work hard to appreciate the things that they have as a blessing from God enjoy their possessions more than somebody else over here who has perhaps more stuff But they didn't work to get it, and they didn't work to maintain it, and so it's meaningless to them. Think about that. In Proverbs 24, verse 30 through 34, we find this same principle mirrored in the book of Proverbs. I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as want one that traveleth and thy want as an armed man. I can remember growing up when uh, we lived on a little five-acre place there, and part of that was pasture land for uh, beef that we might raise, and part of it was an uh, area where we kept our chickens or our goats or other animals that we might raise, and part of it was for garden and orchard, and there were different things there, and then there's the yard and the area there around the house and the outbuildings, and, and Dad always stayed after us that we take care of those things, and we keep it cleaned up, and when he was home from work, he would work with us out there, and when he was busy at the factory where he worked, and we had to get out there, and I can remember a lot of times Dad coming in from work saying, boys, it looks pitiful around here. Looks like a bunch of careless and lazy people live here. You get out there and start cleaning up and straightening up and put up trash and, you know, mow the yard and knock down the weeds and all that sort of thing. The point was is that he didn't want to walk by and look at the property that he and mom had worked so hard to obtain and see it make a standing statement that says we're too lazy to appreciate it and take good care of it. That's what Solomon's talking about in Proverbs 24. Well, you stop and think about that in the way we take care of the things that we have. I remember ta- uh, taking to my car to the mechanic one time to get his service. He said, David, you, you take as good a care of your cars as any customer we have. I hadn't really thought about it that much, but the more I thought about that, the more I thought, you know, that's probably good to just show the fact that you appreciate having an automobile. And don't be lazy about it, but do the things that are necessary to take care of these items. The same way with keeping your house and keeping your property or taking care of anything else that you might own. Don't let your possessions become a badge that screams laziness. God does not approve of laziness. God approves of industrious, hardworking hearts. So we should work hard and we should work smart. We read in Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 10 in a a previous study, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then it must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. What is this telling us? To use wisdom in the way that you work. And he uses as an illustration somebody chopping wood with a dull axe. He said if you'll sharpen the blade, you'll have more success. 
You may exert the same amount of force swinging the axe as you did before, but now because you've guided that with wisdom, you've sharpened the axe blade, all of a sudden you start having more success. So I would suggest to you this sets before us a principle. It's not enough to just work hard. You can work hard and get out there and fight it and work a hole in the wind. <laughs> but you need to work smart. Stop and think about that. About guiding your efforts with wisdom. About trying to do a good job. It's not enough to just stay busy. You know, <clears throat> you notice this and talk to employers about this. Talk to your parents if they've had people to work for them or your grandparents or a friend, somebody at school. And you'll find this out. Employees watch this stuff. They figure out when they hire kids to work at their restaurant or at their store or whatever, they notice the ones that see what needs to be done and go do it. And they notice the others who just try to look busy till it's quitting time. And it's not hard to just try to look busy till quitting time. And you can look like you're always doing something, but you're really accomplishing nothing. But don't be that kind of worker. Be somebody who works wise. Go back to that idea that we're looking to Ecclesiastes for philosophy by which we can live and guide our lives. And here it is. Be a hard worker and be a smart worker. There's no substitute for it. We have a shortcut mentality. We want to find shortcuts, an easy way out and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with trying to find an easier way to do it. But we've got to have an ethic that says if the job is hard, I'm willing to work hard to do that job. Consider that in our work, there is an element of luck. I will tell you that some uh, religious philosophies will deny this till the land looks level. They'll deny it. But the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches it in the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes you try hard, you work hard, you work smart, and it's just bad luck happens. And sometimes you, you, you put out your labors and you have good luck or good fortunes come your way. Ecclesiastes 9 and 11, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle of the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Now this passage doesn't state that as a, a sin-stained speculation about life, that because I'm depressed living here under the sun, I think it's all just about who's lucky or who's not lucky. That's what some people say about this passage, but that's not what this passage says. Solomon observed that as he looked at life, he recognized that sometimes there was just an element of good or bad luck. I enjoy college football, and you follow that sport for long, and I'm sure most other sports, the coaches would say the same thing. You find these coaches that go out and win championships, and they'll tell you, look, we work hard, and we try to have a good plan, and we try to do these things to make the program strong, but we've got to have an element of luck in our favor or we won't win. Because there have been years that we did a better job of coaching and did a better job of teaching and did a better job of recruiting. But Lady Luck frowned on us and we had more problems and we didn't win as many games. You listen to their interviews, a lot of them will tell you things like that. And there's a lesson in that that's clearly taught. It's illustrated in that, in that, uh, that I just told you about coaches, but it's clearly taught in passages like Ecclesiastes 9. In verse 11, look at Ecclesiastes 10, verse 9, just before he tells us about guiding our labors with wisdom. He said, he who quarries stone may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. When you go out and you work and you try to succeed, you are exposing yourself to risk. And sometimes you can have problems that you brought on yourself by not working hard or by not working smart. Sometimes you might have problems that some outside factor has caused. And sometimes you just might have bad luck. And that's all part of it. 
But because you go out and you try to achieve and succeed and it doesn't work, you don't need to quit. Because a hard worker doesn't quit. A hard worker will get up and go try again. And I will tell you, when we do that, we honor God. When we do that through this lens of godly conduct that we've talked about from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7 and 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. What has he said? He said, God has set it up so that there's times that things are going to go well for us and there are times that things are going to go rough. And when you hit one of those times that things go rough, don't sit there and think it's quitting time because it's not. You need to show a sense of work ethic and your perseverance to continue to strive against adversity and hard circumstances and use greater wisdom to guide your labors and do a good job and do the best you can to be this kind of worker that we're reading about here, recognizing that element of luck and recognizing that there's an element of risk. And you're going to have to take risks if you're going to succeed. I will tell you, we could sit here and and turn this into a political-economic discussion and sit here and talk about all these uh, success stories of people who took risks and failed, took risks and failed, took risks and failed, and finally found success. And that's all fine if you're going to school, but I want to show you that kind of concept taught in the Scriptures, and in particular in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4, and also verse 6. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If you let all these factors and the threat of, of, of bad luck and the risks that are involved in your task, you'll never go do anything. You'll never try. So what does he say? In verse 6 there, he said, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You know what he says? Get up, go out there and work. Try. You may fail. It may turn sour on you, but that's all right. You need to try. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Now think about this. Meanwhile, your neighbor is watching. The people that know you in the community are watching. And you're letting your light shine. You're getting out and you're working hard. You're working smart. And you're accepting that there's a certain amount of risk involved in what you're doing and a certain amount of luck. But you get out and you try hard with all your might. And things go great and you honor God with your substance. And you share what you have and you're charitable towards others and you're generous and you're giving at church. And you use the resources and these blessings as a gift from God and you appreciate them and you take care of them. And then the time comes that that same person is watching you work and maybe you're trying a business adventure or maybe you're trying a job or something else. And that thing turns sour on you and it goes bad and maybe you lose money or maybe in your efforts you fall flat on your face. And your neighbor sees you not shaking. Because you're going to get up tomorrow and go work hard and work smart and try again. Why? But not because all your hopes are fixed on these earthly things, but because you're doing that kind of thing. You're working that way because it's the right thing to do. And you want to honor God. And you you don't get all down in the mouth about it because the fact that that particular uh, effort may have failed doesn't change the fact that you've done what God wants you to do. You tried. And it may have... Not succeeded in one case, but you just keep trying. In the morning, you sow your seed. 
If you sat here and watched the weather and make excuses and it may not work this time, that's a recipe for learning laziness. Proverbs 20 and 4 says, The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. Our society has a very jaundiced view of, of laziness and shiftlessness and people that don't put out effort. And it's almost like it's wrong to say that that's wrong. The only thing that's wrong is to say something is wrong. And I'm going to tell you, laziness is wrong. Being a sluggard is wrong. And it's a disgrace and it's a shame. And a Christian shouldn't be like that. We should be industrious. We should be hardworking. Setting an example before others. But be advised, the Bible warns us that when you have success by your labors or just when you have a fulfilling life by your labor and you find joy in that, there will be people that will envy that. We see it on every hand. We feel like we live in a time where there's such an entitlement mentality by people that they, they see somebody else has had success and they immediately think that they're entitled to a share of that whether they put out any effort or not. I will tell you that mentality is not new, unfortunately. That mentality is part of a sinful heart. Ecclesiastes 4, beginning at verse 4, warns us accordingly. Again, I considered all travail and every right work. For this, is a man, for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of the spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. He's talking about a frame of mind that looks at someone else's success and they can't stand it. And they're filled with envy. And he says that person is just folding their hands together and they're consuming themselves. They're eating their, their heart out alive. Maybe we could put it like that. He says, don't be that way. It's better to have a little bit, but have a quiet heart that accepts that some will succeed more than you do. And just quietly go about your business. If somebody travails and somebody works and it goes well with them, others might look at that and envy. Their neighbor might look at that and envy. You can't change that. All you can change is whether or not you have that kind of envious heart. And I hope you know enough about the New Testament to know that over and over the Bible tells us not to be an envious, jealous type individual. We can't allow ourselves to see success and envy that person for having that. We've got to have that quiet heart that says, I'm going to take whatever I can find and be thankful for it as a gift from God and move on and keep working hard and trying to honor him with this work ethic by which I live. The book of Ecclesiastes says a lot about work, but it also says a lot about family. We've touched on some of this already. Let me add to what we've already said. Ecclesiastes talks about the value of a good name. A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death and the day of one's birth. A good name is valuable. There was a day that you could, on your name, just walk into a bank, and if you were known as an honest person, you just sign the papers and get along. And that's changed a lot. They've got a lot of regulations now that regulate that, and the ability to do that has really diminished. However, all those federal regulations and banking rules, I'm, I'm told, still allow for a limited amount of that. You build a good name and a good reputation and you can walk into a place and you've shown yourself to be honorable in paying your debts. And you can still just, on a signature, borrow a certain amount of money. 
Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and jack up your debt doing that. That's not the point at all. The point I'm trying to get at is people see and learn what you are by what they see you doing. You can't expect to build a good name doing bad things. If you want to build a good name, that you, then you conduct your business with honor. You follow some of these principles that we've studied from the book of Ecclesiastes and from the book of Ruth in our daytime studies. Show some loyalty. Show some respect. Show some thankfulness. Show a good, noble heart in the way you carry out your business. And here's what you'll learn. Oh, there'll be people out there that would love to cheat you, but there'll be just a few that you'll find that you can happily trade with and they'll trust you. And it becomes a pleasure to do business with folks like that. And it makes your life easier. Build a good name. And not just for you, but for your family and kids. I want you to think about something. If your parents have worked hard to build a good name, don't go out there and mess that up. Factory where my dad worked for many years, they hired summer labor at times. And I hired on there one summer. It didn't last long because a big layoff hit and they, they, they got rid of all their summer help. But for a short time, I worked there. And my first day before work, my dad got me. And he said, son, I've worked for decades down there to build a good name. Don't you go down there and mess it up. Kind of scared me to think about that. I thought, you know, I can't go down there and be the skilled workman that he was. But you know what? I don't need to go down there and be lazy. Well, don't just think about it on the job. Think about it in the community. Think about how you conduct yourself as a citizen, whether or not you follow the laws, the kind of language you do, the places you will or won't go. Think about the kind of thing that you might do to run your parents' good name. Don't do that. They've worked hard to build it. And the thing about a good name is it takes a while to build it, but it don't take long to tear it up. Ecclesiastes 10 and 1, dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. You can spend a lifetime building a good name and just with a little folly, tear it down, burn it down to the ground immediately. And that is a life that does not honor God. So you've got to build a good name. And what do you use to build that good name? Your labor, your construction, your wisdom. The joys and the entertainments and the blessings you have in life. All the things that Solomon misused and it became vain, you can properly use and build a good reputation. Ecclesiastes talks about marriage and wisdom and family. We talked about that command in chapter 9 and verse 9, to live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Build a good marriage and enjoy the blessings of that good marriage. We live in this throwaway world that, unfortunately, that attitude bleeds over to people. You know, there was a time when I was a little boy, if, if parents went and bought a television, if that thing quit working, it was well worth the money to try to fix it. And it wasn't that hard to fix. As a young man, I could make some small repairs to TVs back then. You had places you could go and buy these little things called tubes. <laughs> That would go bad in there. And you could take those tubes down to the store. You'd watch the picture and jiggle one of those tubes and pray you didn't get shocked. And one of them made the picture flicker. Well, you take that down to the store where you bought tubes. And you had them checking. If it tested bad, they had a replacement tube. You took that back and you fixed your TV. And it was relatively cheap. And if you couldn't fix it, you could call this guy. They called the TV repairman. 
I'm thinking some of you have never met one of those fellows. And he would come with his box of tools and parts and he would fix your TV and it was cheap. But they've increasingly designed TVs and other electronics so that when it breaks, there's some repairs that can be done that are worth it. But in the big picture, you just throw it away. No pun intended, but in the big picture, just throw it away and go get another one. That's the cheapest thing to do. It costs more to repair them than it does to go get another one. And that builds a throwaway mentality in our world. The microwave's broke. Well, why didn't you throw it in the trash? Let's go get another one. Do you know what's unfortunate about that? The friendship is broke. Throw it in the trash. The friendship with the person that I'm married to is broke. Well, why give your all to fix it? Just throw away and go get another one. Ecclesiastes teaches us to have a little more honor than that, folks. To try to build a good marriage and joyfully participate in that relationship. Ecclesiastes 19 and 14, houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers and a prudent wife is of the Lord. The opportunity to have family is a blessing from God, just like those other blessings. We don't mistreat that, we take good care of it. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 26, I want to ask you to think about all this. Before we read that passage in Ecclesiastes 7, beginning at verse 26, think about the fact that Ecclesiastes 9 is written by a man with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I can imagine somebody saying, you know, not so much credibility here. Solomon telling me how important it is to have this great monogamous relationship with my wife when he had a thousand women. I made the statement to you early in this deal that to me, Ecclesiastes is Solomon toward the end of his life looking back and saying, I messed up. And I, I admit it to you, I want to believe that. But here's one of the passages that leads me to that belief. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Was Solomon taken by a woman like that? Well, a few hundred women like that, actually. Remember Sunday morning when we were studying about the life of Solomon? We talked about all these women that he married that led his heart away from God. And now we find him apparently near the end of his life looking back and admitting, you know, a guy that's snared by that pretty face is a sinner. I hear, I hear regret in Solomon's words. Look at verse 27. Behold, this have I found, said the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. He's taking inventory. Which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not one man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. All those who? All those what? Solomon's taking inventory. I'll just tell you what I believe that he's doing, and you, you may see this another way, but I'd like to offer this to you if I may. I believe Solomon's sitting around the palace counting the women. And he's looking for one that's worth her salt. All these pagan wives that were great looking and lured his heart away from God, now he's old, he's looking back across all those misspent years, and he's taking inventory, and he's looking at this one, and he's remembering the day she pulled his heart, and, oh, I got to have that, I got to marry that girl. And he's saying, you know, she's not worth it. 
And he continues to have this accounting, taking an inventory. And so he looks to the next and he counts one by one, evaluating these worthless women. And realizing the fact that he let that trap him meant that he was a sinful man. I think those sour tastes that he's having in his mouth there in Ecclesiastes 7 says something about what it means to build a good marriage relationship with a good person that's worth being married to. He talks about the value of children, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 and 8. We talked about this yesterday. The guy that's there by himself, he doesn't have children, he doesn't have brother. Who's he working for? He doesn't stop to think about that. The idea is if you do have children, you've got something to live for, someone to work for. And elsewhere, the scriptures teach us what a blessing that is. Children are in heritage of the Lord, Psalms 127 says. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. What a blessing children can bring to a man's life. And we see that inferred in this statement here in Ecclesiastes 4. The wisdom in family says you take these children as a gift from God and you try to use them to accomplish powerful things in the way that you teach them. Ecclesiastes offers us wisdom in community, in the way we conduct our community life. It teaches respect for government. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2 through 5. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, that in regard to God, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. He's saying, you need to submit to your government. You need to show respect for the king. You can't just strut in there and think of in Solomon's days and the days of those absolute monarchies, you didn't just strut into the palace and say, hey, king, you're wrong. So he says, show some respect. You think of how you can practice in your relationship in the community, showing respect for civil authorities. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place for yielding pacifieth great offenses. Solomon is saying, show yourself to be an honorable citizen that wants to yield to the good of, of, of the, the, the land that you're a part of. Jesus taught the same thing. The apostles taught the same thing in their writings. Romans 13 and 7, render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. On the tail end of a section where Paul talks about our relationship with our government officials, he says, show them some respect, show them some honor. You may not like what they're doing. You may not agree with how they're living. You may know that it's evil. You may say that it's evil. But in terms of your submission to government, you've got to show respect. Think about careful speech, the way you conduct yourself in societal life, the way you try to build that good name. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 12 and verse 20. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. Time and again, the scriptures warn us about a person saying words that wind up coming back to bite them. And so he's saying, you think about what you say. A wise man will use his mouth to say gracious words. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. 
For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. It just beats all I've ever seen. You think nobody's listening. You might not even be telling anybody. You might think you're by yourself and you say something bad about somebody else and somebody will hear it and tell it. It's happened. And Solomon warns here. So what do you do? You don't talk that way about people. Because if that gets heard and that gets told, what happens to your name? What happens to your relationships with your neighbors? Ecclesiastes 12 and 11, the words of a wise man are as goads and as nails fastened by the master of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. He tells us here to speak good words, and these words will be like nails fastened by that master builder, that master uh, that assembles things together, and he puts them together, and those well-fastened nails and screws and the glue and the grooves and all that. If he's working with a wood project, he might use those techniques to hold it all together tight. He says that's what well-spoken words are. So think about the words you use in your relationships with others. Be willing to listen. Ecclesiastes 4 and 13 says, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Sounds to me like Solomon had some mirror time. Thinking about a hard-headed, bull-headed old king that went off after idolatry and he thought about it, he thought about it, he said, you know, that poor and wise child that's still willing to learn is better than a guy like me that won't listen. Maybe that was a turning point for him where he began to listen and recognize that he was doing things that was wrong. Ecclesiastes 10 and 14, a fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? Look. This fool will say a lot, but they don't want to listen. Nobody can tell them anything. They don't want to hear it. Don't be that kind of person who's unwilling to listen to others. Be careful about gossip. We already read about saying something bad and a bird hearing it and carrying it all into the wind. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. Also take heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oft times also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise have cursed others. So on that issue of gossip and backbiting, stop and think. Somebody says something about you you don't like, and it hurts your feelings, and you're ready to pout like a baby and start a war. Stop and think. Have you ever said something about someone else that you knew you shouldn't have said it? Well, of course you have, and I have too. Well, you hear somebody say something hateful about you, give them a little credit. Recognize that that may not be how they fundamentally are at all times. Recognize they might have done something wrong that they'll later regret, be willing to have some healing in that relationship. Have a better attitude about it and stop and think before you say something like that about somebody else. Have a little self-control, Ecclesiastes 7 and 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Live that life of self-discipline we've talked about from the book of Ecclesiastes. Have a self-control and that will help your relationships in the community. Important life principles. This sampling of practical wisdom in Ecclesiastes gives us an idea of what the book teaches. There's a lot more than what we've taken time to talk about tonight, but it gives you some ideas. These principles are very reminiscent of what Solomon taught in Proverbs. And when we study Ecclesiastes through this light, we recognize what we talked about last Sunday afternoon, that what Solomon spoke really was truth. The purpose of this wisdom is not to rid life of its vain trappings, but to exhibit godly character as we conduct our lives under the sun. I want you to really think about that for a little bit. 
All this wisdom that we're taught about in different ways you can govern your life and improve your life. It's not about just taking and all of a sudden life under the sun becomes magical. That's not the point. It's about, remember last night's illustration with the tinker toys, it's about using those tinker toys that are so feeble and brittle to build the strongest car you can build. It's about living a life that honors God. And I just want to tell you, you can't do it without Jesus. You can't truly and fully bring honor to God without Jesus. All the wisdom in the world and all the other things that might make you look smart in the eyes of others, the truest wisdom leads you to the feet of the cross. The book of Ecclesiastes, I believe the Son of God there is personified as wisdom. You stop and think about that. True wisdom brings you to a realization that I can't do this alone and I can't spare myself from death and sin's curse. I need a Savior. And that awareness that comes from true wisdom will bring you to the feet of the cross. And I want to offer you an opportunity to make that choice right now. If you're not a Christian, to come to Christ for salvation. If you know what you need to do, we want to help you do that. If you don't know what you need to do, we would like to open up the scriptures and show you. There are many capable individuals here that would be glad to take that time with you. If you are a Christian and you need help in your walk with the Lord, of course we always happily offer you our prayers to assist you in your walk with God. If we can help you in either way, we invite you to come. Have a seat on the front pew while we stand and sing.